Well, last week we, uh, you know, we, we got the sober news that Jesus' disciples were, were going to abandon him and just leave him completely alone at his darkest hour. And in the next breath, instead of condemning them for their failure, this, this, these things amaze me. After all he does, you know that, you ever feel that way, tell me somebody like that? After all I've done for you, this is the way you treat me. Instead of condemning them, he declares that even though they would have tribulation in this world, they could still one day soon live courageously because he has overcome the world. Do you remember that last part of the text last Sunday? Well, this morning we're going to learn that one of the ways Jesus helps us overcome failure and unbelief is certainly the regular teaching of the word, your regular diet of, t- your, your intake of God's word, for sure. Um, you're sharing the gospel. We're going to learn about how mission plays a part in that. Um, but one of the ways that we overcome these things is because Christ is praying for us. I don't know how much you think about that. I hope that, I hope for anyone who has the 3 a.m. things that, that I can have and and you just know how much you need to sleep and you know how tired you're going to be the next day and the responsibilities you have and the, the dark of night seems darker. There's just something about knowing. Jesus is praying for me. Jesus is praying for us. So we're given a sacred privilege as we look at this study this week and next week. It's a sacred privilege to not only know that he's praying for us, uh, but he's in doing so, he's actually teaching us how to pray as well. So as we listen to Jesus praying, we're going to learn that we can know how to better pray too. So main point for this morning is in tragedy or triumph, pray that God be glorified through Christ's death and Christ's disciples, because that's what Jesus prayed for. Jesus prayed, Lord, glorify yourself in my glory. What an interesting way to talk about the cross. You know, when we think of glory, we think of ticker tape parades or NBA champions or just the great uh, applause of people. Jesus says the greatest glory that God will receive is through my death and, and burial and resurrection. So in tragedy or triumph, pray that God be glorified through Christ's death and through Christ's disciples. First point is Jesus prays to God to be glorified in his death. Uh, This chapter of God's word has been called a New Testament expression of the holy of holies. And it really is such a cool expression like that. And apparently, you know, from what the theologians say is that the way Jesus is praying here, in fact, in uh, in the ESV, the heading above this chapter is the high priestly prayer. I think that's why the, the theologians have called this the holy of holies. All the Bible is God's inspired, inerrant, sufficient, authoritative word. But there's this section of the Bible that feels a little bit more like the holy of holies. And one of the reasons why is because the high priests of the Old Testament when they would go into the Holy of Holies, apparently, from what we understand, they would pray in a pattern very similar to this. You remember how they would go in. Now, Jesus goes into the presence of his Father, and he's sinless. 
But these high priests were not sinless. So when they went in, they would pray, Dear God, please, please use my life to glorify your name. Please, God. And that's what Jesus is praying. Dear God, use my life to glorify your name. And then the priests would pray for Israel, for the people of Israel. Keep them, Lord. Protect the people of Israel. And then he would think of the next generations of Israelites. So that's, what, that's the way he'd be praying. Well, that's so much like the way chapter 17 breaks down. It can be outlined exactly like that. Verses 1 through 5, Jesus prays for himself. Verses 6 through 19, he prays for his disciples, which is specifically referring to the 11, but has direct implications for us. And then verse 20, 20 through 26, which we'll look at next week, Jesus prays for those who would one day become believers in Christ because of the word of truth and the gospel that would be given to the disciples. So verse 1 says, Jesus, after saying these things, and when you come across something like that in your text, don't, don't just keep, don't just rush by it. Make sure your heart is getting the blessing of what he's talking about. After saying these things, you should say, what things? Well, in the context of John, it's really the whole book of John, but particularly verses 13 through 16, because remember, that's when now Jesus is now not dealing, he's not doing any more public ministry. He takes his disciples and he gathers them together in the upper room. And verses 13, uh, chapters 13 through 16 is Jesus in the upper room with his disciples, teaching them and equipping them and encouraging them and arming them for battle and preparing them to live life without his physical presence with them anymore because they would be united to the Holy Spirit. That's what he's been talking about. And now John 17. I don't know, guys. I don't know if this is in the upper room. I don't know if they've left the upper room and now they're in the Garden of Gethsemane and now this is where Jesus is praying this. I don't know. But he no longer, there's a place where as much as he loved his disciples, as much as I, I, just, I, you know, I love to look into the faces of these kids, but there comes a place where we, we've got to not just look there. We've got to look up to him. And he turns his attention Godward. He looks to the face of his father and he prays. We've learned so much about him from his life and teaching. Now we're going to learn a lot about his praying. Specifically, you know, there's a lot to said about, wouldn't you like to know the future? Would you really like to know the future? I freak out about what the future might be. How many hard things are we going to have to go through that you really wouldn't want to know about right now? Right. But Jesus knows exactly what's going to happen to him. This is how we pray in times of trouble. The way Jesus is praying. So, and there's got to be people in trouble this morning. That's just that we get more than five people together. Chances are we've got some folks who are troubled you're worried, you're, you've lost sleep, you're, you're not in a reconciled relationship with someone in your family, your, the, your job is threatened, your health is, is in question. There's so many things that can trouble us. And the Lord is saying, in your worst trouble or in your best day, whether it's a day of triumph or trouble, this is how the Lord prays for us. And we can learn about, about how to pray from him. Verse 1, Jesus says that the hour has come. 
This is the hour that redemptive history has been waiting for. John has spoken much about it. Jesus keeps telling my hour's not yet come, my hour's not yet come. But now the hour has come. What hour? This is the hour when the Messiah would crush the serpent's head. This is the hour. This is the hour when the true Passover lamb would be killed and the shedding of his blood would deliver God's people from judgment. This is the hour when the one who would come, who was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief, the one who was despised and who would bear our griefs and carry our sorrows, the one who would be stricken and smitten by God and afflicted, the one who would be pierced for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities, and chastised for our peace. And the one who by his wounds, we would be healed. The hour has come. For 4,000 years, we've been waiting for that hour. And now that wonderful and woeful hour has come. In verses 1 through 5, you saw that God's glory and the godly good and the joy it would bring to us, that's the dominant theme of everything Jesus would pray for in this passage, in this chapter. Jesus prays for God to be glorified through his life and death, and then he prays for God to be glorified through his disciples. So that's how we just broke down the study this week. He prays for for the glory of Christ in his death, and he prays for the glory of Christ, the glory of God in his disciples. So let's just... The word glory... I think if a lot of us had a pop quiz on defining biblically the word glory, I think we'd have to go to summer school. (laughs) I think think we speak a lot about glory, but I don't know that we really grasp it or need to maybe be reminded of it, you know? I think it maybe just sounds like an an emotional experience, like something exciting, and it it certainly can be. But let's let's kind of take a tiptoe through the Bible and see what, what the word glory meant in the Old Testament, in the Old Covenant, and then what the word glory means in the New Covenant. It's like two sides of the same coin. In the Old Testament, the word glory was the word kabod, uh, which referred to seeing something or someone who is of such importance, such power, such beauty, so as to inspire awe and worship. Think of the burning bush in Moses. There was glory there. The cloud coming down upon the tabernacle that was so thick with the presence, not just the presence of God, the holy presence of God that Moses just couldn't even go in. Think of Isaiah and the vision he had of the Lord being high and lifted up and his train is filling the temple. And what's Isaiah's response? Woe is me. I'm undone. This is is that sense of the glory of God in the Old Testament. It was like seeing a mighty king come out of his castle wearing his crown with countless jewels, his royal robes on full display, the sword that reminded everyone of his military might. And often it would be a parade of his glory. Often it would be preceded by horses and chariots and military forces. Often preceded by a parade of prisoners that had just been captured by their most recent military victory. There's a weightiness to that, isn't there? Let me ask you this. Let me ask you this. With all that's going on in the world, with all the, the talk of our defenses right now, that we're really behind in our, in our the, you know, what was the headline a couple weeks ago? 
how these things get out to the public is just like, yeah, why don't we tell the public that China and Russia are like 17 years ahead of us in military power, you know? And then you hear stuff like that. And you know what North Korea loves to do and what Russia loves to do and what China loves to do? They love to have a, they love have, they they have parades, don't they? But their parades aren't like Mardi Gras, throwing beads and candy and all this kind of stuff. Their parades are their missile launchers and their tanks and all of of their military prowess. Doesn't that give you pause? It doesn't make you worship. I'm not saying that. But there's a weightiness to it, isn't there? It gets your attention. It causes you to stand up and take notice that there's something great and powerful here. It's not the Lord, but imagine the weightiness that we should ascribe to him. Have you ever heard the word Ichabod? Do you remember Ichabod? Anybody hear the word Ichabod from the Old Testament? Ichabod means the glory is departed. Kabod, ik, kabod. It means the glory is departed. Well, it's not departed when we're talking about Christ, is it? The New Testament word is doxa, and it's related to the words we use, doxology or orthodox, and it's something or someone is being revealed and seen and experienced and honored and worshipped and obeyed for who they really are in all of their beauty, in all of their character, in all of their authority, in all of their majesty. It's a revelation of character. It's a revelation of power. It's a revelation of wisdom. It's a revelation of love. This revelation is meant to humble us. It's meant to to make us wonder and worship and, and have awe about someone so very great. I loved the description that one person told me about, you know, um, when, I try, when I get roses for Jan, I try to get them be, when they're still bud, buds. <laughs> Sounds like I'm West, West Texas there. Hey, bud. When the roses are buds, right? And they're pretty, but they're not in their glory yet, are they? The rose in their glory is when it's open. And you can see the intricacies of the petals and the differing colors that, are, that, that, that you couldn't see as long as it was a bud. But now that it's open, you guys, as Christ faces the cross, it's like the opening of a rose. Now we're going to be able to see and, and the weightiness and the joy and the, the awesomeness of who God is because of what Jesus did for us when he died. So that's where we're going with this. It's so beautiful that we're to make a big deal about it. That's part of the glory thing. We make much of it. You know, I tease Cowboys fans, you know, I just like to do that, you know, but my saints haven't done that great lately either. Um, But that's not the point. We we think nothing of making much about, about something that happened on a Sunday that lasted three hours. I'm not, I'm not against that. I jump up and down like a crazy person for my teams too. I'm just saying, do we make much of earthly, worldly things and not much of Jesus? It's no wonder that our kids aren't unimpressed with our Jesus. If they hear daddy screaming more about the home run they just hit or the double play they just turned or the three-pointer or the, whatever it is that they just did, 
more than we're expressing our wonder and thankfulness to Christ and what He's done for us, more than recognizing the work of grace that He's doing in my kids, I tried to remember, please, Lord, help me to be more excited about the grace I see you doing in their lives than I am just about their academics and their sports. Now, that doesn't mean... So, (laughs) don't do this. Your son hits a home run, it's a walk-off, they win the state tournament, and Dad's just gone... No. Go crazy kukulaka over that. But it shouldn't even hold a candle to how much we make much of Jesus. For some of you who are older, you might remember there was an old song called, I want to make much of you, Jesus. I want to make much of your love. I want to live today to give you the praise that you alone are so worthy of. I want to make much of your mercy. I want to make much of your love. You know, when we sang that, the the Ministerial Alliance had me uh, do a marriage conference years and years ago. And I asked them, could this be the theme song of the marriage conference? And the people said, it's a marriage conference. Because they thought I was going to come in and just teach them about, oh, how to be married. These three easy steps to be married. We're missing the purpose of marriage if we're not making much of Jesus and how he uses marriage and, and the, the power that marriage is supposed to have. By the way, in February, we're going to do a marriage conference. It's called The Gospel According to Jesus. And uh, so you might be putting that down in your calendars. We can't wait for that. Um, so the glory of God in Christ, it's always present, but sadly, we're not always seeing it. The glory of God is, is, is like, like, kind of like the moon. It's out there. It's big. But it kind of doesn't matter a lot, you know? Um, it needs to be magnified for us to really get a hold of what that glory is like. And if you want to think of, the Jesus, of Jesus this way, he is the divine telescope. He's more than that because he is God the Son. So he in himself is the moon, you could say. But, but he's the magnifier of who God is. Isn't that what a telescope does? It, we thought, oh, wow, I thought the moon was awesome just with the naked eye. Oh, my goodness, what there is to see through the lens of that telescope. Oh, God, give us eyes to see Jesus like that. Give us eyes to see the glory of God like that. Hebrews 1.3 says that the sun is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by the power of his word. 2 Corinthians 4 says, For God said, Let light shine out of darkness. He is the one who made his light to shine in our hearts. How? By giving us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God. Where? In the face of Christ. That's how we behold the glory of God most clearly and most wonderfully and most intimately. It's in the face of Jesus and in his work. And now in this time of trial and temptation and pain, what Jesus prays for most is that God be glorified. That the character of God and his holiness, love and justice and mercy would be made known to his disciples and then to the world. He doesn't pray this is where Jesus' prayers are so not, they're so different than my prayers. He doesn't pray for his circumstances to change. He doesn't pray for the threat to go away. 
He doesn't pray for the sorrow to end. Though those are not bad or wrong prayers in the right context. None of us, we're not, not masochists here. But that's not what he first prayed. And this was a huge lesson to me. I'll just confess it to you. What Jesus prays for first and foremost is that God be glorified. Is that your first prayer? As you get older, there's always things that you're just, you, you don't know. Is, am, am I, what I'm feeling, is that just me getting older? Or is what I'm feeling that something is wrong? Those of you who know me very well, I go, I, I typically don't think of just getting older. I think, oh my God, something horrible is happening inside of me. And I need, is my will up to date? Jan Marie, is my will up to date? Honey, do you know I love you? Let me call the kids. I love you guys. I love you. Dad, what's wrong? Well, I got a hangnail and I just don't know if I'm going to survive it. I, you know, I, and, and I tend to pray. I pray. My urgency is about my fear and my worry and my health. And, and again, not wrong, but it, should it be the lead? It's not the lead. It's not the lead story in this broadcast of heavenly news. The lead is God, regardless of the trouble, be glorified. In my tears, let people see that Jesus is more valuable to me than earthly gain. In, in, the, in my losses, may they see that I have gain in Christ. I love the testimony of athletes who when they, you know, you know, it's one thing, oh, man, first of all, they just want championship, right? First of all, I just want to thank the man upstairs. <laughs> Couldn't have done this without him, right? Uh, that, well, I hope that's, I hope, you're, I hope you're really true. But How about the guy who lost and, and made the error that caused the other team to win? And, and he gets up and says, Hate that we lost, but when I became a Christian, I received eternal gain that the loss of a game can't take away from me. That'd be a testimony, wouldn't it? That would be a testimony. Are you praying for God's glory? Sleeplessness has been a friend, sadly, not a good friend to me, way too often. And so I'm trying to learn at that moment God, please be glorified in my sleeplessness. Help me, to, help me to see your faithfulness and your mercy and your love and your sustaining grace in ways I would never see if I, if I slept eight hours every night. Please, God. Please, Lord. May, may people see me being more patient even though I'm exhausted and tired. I, I'm physically tired. But Lord, could you fill me with your spirit and bring glory to your name by, by giving me grace to be patient when I'm weary? Oh God, nothing is more important than your glory. Nothing is more important than your glory. Our greatest need and our greatest joy will always be found in God being glorified in Christ. I don't know if you think about it that way. You know, the, the, what's the chief end of man? Some of you guys know what? Glorify God and enjoy Him forever. God glorified. Um, God, what Piper say, when God is... We are, 
God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him. There's this glory that feeds the soul of a believer. The glory of Christ that feeds the soul of a believer. So God, it's not that God doesn't care about your sickness. He cares about your sickness. He just wants to give you more than what you're asking for. He wants to let your eyes behold him in ways you haven't seen before. As we also pray for the healing of your body. But let's let him do what he most wants to do, is to magnify Jesus in our very midst. And so here's how Jesus prays for that glory. He first prays for God to be glorified through his death. Verse 4, he says, I brought you glory on earth by completing the work you gave me to do. Jesus had glorified God every day through his words and through his work, through his prophecies fulfilled, through his power to heal broken bodies, calm storms, cast out demons. But now the cross... Oh, the cross. This is why we sing about the cross all the time. This is why we preach about the cross all the time. Because the clearest and most powerful and most loving revelation of God's character and purpose is the cross. That was all these little things that I tried to instill in the boys as they were growing up. Guys, why do we know Jesus loves us? And the, the catechism answer in our family was because of the cross. Okay, so guys, so let's say... Something happens and, and uh, something like Papa dies. How do we know Jesus loves us? Might be really sad because Papa died. But we know Jesus loves us not because of what we see happening in our lives right now. We know Jesus loves us because he died on the cross for our sins. And because he did the thing we most needed, we know that he's going to help us with Papa dying. But it has to start at the cross, doesn't it? The cross is what we most needed. It was the clearest revelation of the glory of God, of his faithfulness and of his mercy. So Jesus in verse 1, he says, Father, the time has come. Glorify your son that the son may glorify you. What do we see in the cross that we don't see just in a healing or we don't see in just a miracle of financial provision? Those are our those are expressions of God and his grace and glory. But at the cross, we see holiness and love, mercy and justice, like we see nowhere else. We see the ugliness of sin. You think sin is ugly just in what you've done? You, sometimes we grieve of sin, but our grief is just the consequences. We're not grieving because of the offense that it was to our God. We're not grieving because of the, the hurt that it caused other people. We're just sad because it's costing us something. But this cross, you want to look at what, how ugly sin is, you look at this cross. Not just the physical torture Jesus went through. The wrath of God, which is an eternal judgment. Picture this. I don't even know how to even say this. How do you calculate this? How many sinful thoughts and evil deeds have we committed in our lifetime and will still commit after this Sunday service? How many? I don't know if there's a computer that can add up my sins. Jesus paid an eternal price, exhausted the just wrath of God for every sin I've committed, not just in my, with my hands, but with my heart and with my mind. All the things I think that I never say that were sinful in his sight and deserved an eternity of justice and wrath, righteous wrath. That's how serious sin is, isn't it? 
It's not just the blood that was shed and the beard that was ripped out of his face and the the whipping that exposed his, his ribs and his internal organs. As horrible as that is, the suffocation that he endured and the bloodletting that went he went through. That was horrible. But it was nothing like the absence of God's love and the presence of God's wrath. And that's what Jesus experienced on that cross. We see, we see the character of God like we don't see it anyplace else. And with that paid, oh, the love of God. This isn't like just romantic love. This isn't love because we loved him. This is love in spite of us. This is love that's undeserved. There's no love like this in countless universes, let alone one. The cross shows us his glory. And that's what Jesus prays for. You know, people tell me all the time, I cannot believe in a God who is loving and good because there's so much suffering in the world. And and I think if you hear that, I think first thing you ought to say is, I totally agree. Unless that loving God sent his son into this suffering world to suffer everything you go through. He doesn't sin. He's tempted with everything that we're tempted with. And then because our law-breaking against God deserves a just judgment, he so loved the world that he gave his life on the cross suffered and died so that you could have a right relationship with God. I think it's, I I push back a little bit. Hopefully I'm not being obnoxious because I'll say, I don't know how you can't believe in a God like that. I don't know how you can't believe in a God like that. Jesus prays for God to be glorified through being with him in heaven. He says, now, Father, in verse 5, glorify me in your presence with the glory I had with you before the world began. Jesus wants to again experience the glory of being with the Father in heavenly realms. But he's not just wanting that for himself. He's never just doing something for himself. He's wanting to bring all of those who believe in him into the presence of his Father with him. So when he's praying about, oh, I long for that joy that we had before, uh, through for, in eternity past, I long for that joy joy and what will happen in eternity future but now he's wanting it for us too that's such good news this is a heavenly glory filled with the love and fellowship of the father and son and the spirit this is a heavenly glory that is sinless satanless and suffer (laughs) sufferlessness suffer there ain't no suffering there can you imagine Can you imagine a glory where every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father? Maybe now you get a sense of, I don't know if you, as you're reading through the Bible, when you get to, you know, we make a lot of Psalm 23 
and, and talking about the valley of shadow of death and all of those things, we should. But in Psalm 24, it's Jesus returning to heaven in victory. And here's what it says. Lift up your heads, O gates, and be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the king of glory may come in. Who is this king of glory? And this is the way they would do it in, in the Old Testament times. It'd be like, almost like there was a chorus. I divided you in half here. And I would, you would, I would say, who is this king of glory? And they would respond, the Lord strong and mighty. Who is this king of glory? And then the next, the other half of the crowd would say, the Lord of hosts. He is the king of glory. Oh, I'd actually love to do that, but we won't do that. So redemption. So redemption has been accomplished in the death of Christ, but now redemption must be applied to the hearts of those who would believe. And that's what verse C, Jesus prays for the glory of God in the salvation of sinners. He prays for the glory of God's sovereignty and that no sin or devil can prevent God from his saving purpose to save his people. So he he talks about the authority and the sovereignty of Jesus' mighty arm. But he also speaks of it like this. And I want to ask you this question. This is what I love. I'd love to be able to talk heart to heart a little bit about where when our small groups meet that you could talk heart to heart with your small groups uh, when they start resuming again. Did you notice the terminology is that Jesus, that God, the, the scripture says that God gives a people to Jesus. They're gifts from God to Jesus. They're rewards for his suffering. But God sees you as a treasured gift. And he gives that treasured gift to Jesus. Do you see yourself as a treasured gift to Jesus? <laughs> was that Brad? Was that, 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 I don't know if that was Brad. Oh man, Brad, I, I probably without help. I don't think that way a lot. I see why God shouldn't love me. I see why I'm, I see why I'm the gag gift. <laughs> Not a treasure gift. I'm the white elephant gift. I'm, well, maybe I'm a white elephant, but I'm a white elephant gift. I'm, but the, those he saves are his delight. You're a treasured gift from God to Jesus before the foundation. So there's the mystery of his sovereign grace before the foundations of the world. God had a people that he would give to the son, but they would only become his people through his death and burial and resurrection. Only become them and become uh, his people in real time, we could say. And he says, so this is eternal life. That you might know God and the son that he sent. Eternal life is not just a quantity, right? It's not just we get forever with Jesus. It's a quality, and the quality is in knowing. The quality is in knowing. So I would ask you today, if you're visiting with us, I'm so glad you're here. Maybe you've never considered the the claim of Christ to be the, the Lord and Savior of sinners. Maybe you've never put your faith in Him in a saving way. Or maybe you think, just believing that Almost like two plus two is four. I believe Jesus is the son of God, like two plus two is four, but it's not changing your world. Eternal life is knowing him. Eternal life, oh, there's an old song. Sorry. To know, know, know him is to love, love, love him. That's a really good lyric. I don't know what the rest of the song is like. Maybe the rest of the song is like horrible, but... 
That's what it is to be saved. To know Christ as Lord and Savior, the Holy Spirit comes and sheds abroad, pours out into your heart the love of Christ. To know Christ is to love Him. To love Christ is to obey Him. To want to, we don't do it perfectly. But there's a desire to obey Him. There's a desire to glorify Him. Have you come to know Jesus as your Lord and Savior with the evidence that you don't just know what he did for you, you love him now personally. And in knowing him, you want to become more like him, more like him in his character and in his mission. The more we behold him, the more we become like him, Corinthians says. Um, Nathaniel Hawthorne had written a story called The Great Stone Face. And uh, it was a story about kind of this legend that this little boy heard that there was a you know, kind of picture. Oh my goodness, help my memory. What's the, where, the, the four presidents that are on the mountain? Mount Rushmore. So picture something like Mount Rushmore, but there's this, just this one legendary figure uh, for this people group that is in that area. And, the, and the, the, the thought was, is that if you look long enough at the face of that figure, at some point he's going to reward you with, with coming again in power and victory and might. and So that's just like this local legend. So this little boy believed it. And so he, he would go to that mountain and he would sit down and he would just stare at it day and night. He, you, know, he, he, you know, his mom would have to call him in because he was staying too late outside. And, but he, and he kept, he got through his teen years and he got into his adults and he, you know, he's still trying to keep a job and doing all those things, but he still keeps staring at that Stone Mountain. He spent a lifetime now staring at that Stone Mountain, and now he's old. And uh, he gets up out of bed one day, and he goes outside, and he's probably going to head to the mountain. And the village goes crazy when they see him. Why are they going crazy? Because they're saying, ah, he looks just like the face of the one on the mountain. Isn't that really the story of Christianity? The more we behold Jesus, the more we become like him. That's salvation. That's salvation. Guys, this is why Jesus taught us to pray, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be be thy name. Bring glory to your name, O God. Bring glory to your name. Make your name famous. Use my life to bring your name honor. And I'm going to stop there. That feels really good. I'm going to stop there and we'll pick up, and this will fit with next week as well, with the last few verses. But Jesus prayed not just for the glory of of God in his death, but he also prayed for the glory of God in the disciples. And so that's where we'll study next week. We'll pick up with that next week. So Josh, would you come? Would you, you and Stephen come? Josh, are you going to do Behold Our God? I think that's so good. So guys, can we just practice what we heard in the word? Can we, can we make much of Jesus? 
because of his death on the cross, he's opened the doors of heaven so that all who believe in him can go with him there. And he's paid the price so that you could be saved from your sin. He should, we should make much of him way more than we make much of a cowboy victory or the stock market improving or house prices getting better. Just there's so many things we make much of and there's no one like him. So the lyrics we're going to sing are, Behold our God, seated on his throne. Come, let us adore him. I'm going to ask that you would just give your heart to this. Give your heart to him. Be asking him to use your life. Use your joys for his glory. Don't just be like the, the, the was it, there were 10 lepers. One came back to say thank you. The other nine went running off with their miracle. Just got further and further away from Jesus. Some of us, I think, need to pray, God, please. Use the blessings in my life to bring you glory. I don't want to love what you give me more than I love you. So please, use the blessings to bring you glory. But how many of you are troubled? How many of you are hurting? And God cares about it. He's numbered the hairs of your head. He cares about the smallest things in your life. But first things first. God, I come to you this morning because Jesus paid a high price for me to come. And what I first want to ask, because you've already demonstrated your love for me, so there's no question that you love me. No question. So I want to pray that you'd use what I'm going through right now to honor your name, to make, to make much of Jesus. Do it, Lord, for, for my own heart, but do it for my, my, my spouse. Do it for my children. Do it for the people I work with. Do it for the people I go to school with. Do it for the people I, I play sports with. Please help us make much of Jesus. Let's stand.